Amen. So we've titled this series the Jelly of the Month Club because it kind of comes from one of my favorite Christmas movies when it's edited, and that is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. At the very end, uh, Clark W. Griswold is expecting to get a bonus from his company, and instead he gets a one-year subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. And, and Christmas is a time that is frequently disappointing. And so I thought maybe we just need to talk about the disappointments that we encounter at Christmas time so that we can also discuss maybe how God wants to work in the midst of those. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been telling you my own personal Christmas disappointment stories. I've got enough. And so I'll tell you another one today. So I told you two weeks ago about a bike that I got. I told you last week about a Millennium Falcon. And today I'm going to tell you about a gift that my wife gave me. Jen, I didn't tell you that I was going to tell you this story. Um, that I was going to tell everybody this story. Uh, so First of all, the thing you need to know is that my wife, Jennifer, is the world's greatest gift giver, okay? In fact, last night, she stayed up until about 3 a.m. to prepare gifts for all of the volunteers here in the church. They're on the table out there in the lobby. If you're a volunteer around here, you need to make sure you leave with your gift. And so... Jen is just a phenomenal gift giver, and if you ever had a competition in Christmas for who wins Christmas, it's not the person who gets the best toys, it's the person who gave the best thing, you know, and she always wins. She is the winner of Christmas every single year. Plus, she's really good at keeping secrets, and so by the time Christmas comes around, I generally have no clue, except for one year. One year, it was like September, and she was so excited about something that she had gotten for me that she let a hint drop. And she was like, oh, I'm so excited about this thing that I got for you. And I, so I annoyed her for the next three months trying to say, okay, what is this thing that you've gotten me? Give me some kind of hint here. Give me something, anything. And she's like, I, I can't give you any hints. I mean, first of all, and, and so then she dropped a bunch of hints. But the first, the first hint was, don't get your hopes up. That was the first thing. She said, it's not that big of a deal. It's a small thing. It's not that big of a deal. Don't get your hopes up, but I'm really excited to give it to you. And I'm like, okay, so what am I supposed to do with that? It's not a big deal, but don't get your hopes up, but I'm really excited to give it to you. And so I teased her and I prodded her for months trying to figure out what it was. And by the time Christmas rolled around, my expectations were through the roof. I was like, okay, so this is this thing she's trying to downplay, but she's super excited about it. So what it must be, it must be something that is relatively inexpensive. That's why I shouldn't get my hopes up. But it's something that is incredibly thoughtful and something that is just going to make me and everyone who hears the story cry. And that's what I'm thinking. So I'm thinking my expectations are through the roof and the kids have no idea. Usually I can get information out of them. But this particular year, nothing. I'm getting nothing from the kids and from Jen, I'm just getting these cryptic messages. And then finally, Christmas rolls around and there's a little package. And I'm thinking to myself, I bet that's my package. I bet that's the thing, and I want to save it till the end. I don't remember when I opened it, but I remember, in fact, I want to, I want to highlight for you the important fanfare of this moment. She gave me this. And I opened it, and I was, oh, a harmonica. 
Anytime the person tells you the name of the gift they just opened, it's a pretty good sign that they were not expecting that thing. And so I, I opened it up and I'm like, oh, so this was the thing. Don't get your hopes up, Jeff. Oh, okay. And then it goes on for the next like five minutes of her trying to explain to me the story of why this was such the thing. And she had paid attention because like two years earlier, I had mentioned I really wanted to learn how to play the harmonica. And she keeps track of this stuff. And so like the next time she had an opportunity, she bought me a harmonica. And I tried to learn how to play it. I really, really did. But I'm not that good at it. And so anyway, it's been in my drawer for quite some time. But I have taken it on many camping trips to many campfires and have thought, many times about playing it and uh, to, try to, to try to learn a little bit. But anyway, so it's not like a big disappointment, but it was definitely a disappointment. It was a disappointment because I had a certain kind of expectations, and then those expectations weren't fulfilled, even though they were fulfilled by a person who knew me better than I knew myself. They were fulfilled by a person who understood me better than I understood myself, who had been keeping track of me for a long period of time, who'd been paying attention to me, who loved me, who knew something that would be a blessing to me. And once I heard the whole story, I was like almost in tears. I was like, yes, that is something I wanted two years ago. And so it was so just, you know, sensitive and meaningful and and that kind of a thing. But there was that moment where the gift was opened and the expectations had been too high. Today, we're going to look at a story about some guys who got a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. They thought they were getting one thing, and they ended up getting something that completely disappointed them. But as we've seen for the past two weeks, what they ended up getting was exactly what they needed. In fact, more than just what they needed, it's what we all needed. And so I want to take you to that story. It's in Luke chapter 24. It's a story of disappointment surrounding two guys. Now, as you're flipping there, as you're flipping over to Luke chapter 24, I need to give you some spoilers because this is the story where we learn about Jesus's number one disappointing act. The thing that Jesus does that disappointed everyone who knew him. Now listen, Jesus disappointed everybody. In fact, that's, I said a couple of weeks ago that I thought disappointment was the true meaning of Christmas because everybody who knew Jesus was disappointed by him in some way. But today we hear the story of the time that Jesus disappointed everybody because he died. Now, we're not going to cover the story of Jesus' death here. We're going to dig into the disappointment experienced by people who knew Jesus before and watched him die. We're going to experience the disappointment through their eyes. Now, I've got to give you a spoiler. By the time we come to Luke 24, by the time we come to verse 13 in Luke 24, Jesus has risen from the dead. Today is not an Easter message, so I'm not spending all my time on Jesus' resurrection or his crucifixion. By this point in time, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. So spoiler alert, you just heard it, Jesus has been raised from the dead. But there's a problem. The guys that we encounter in verse 13 don't know it yet. Well, let's just be more accurate. They don't believe it yet. They don't believe it yet that Jesus has actually come back. And so we encounter them in that weird place where it's Sunday morning, the day Jesus rose from the dead, and they have heard reports about Jesus' tomb being empty, but they are not believing it. And they're just kind of going along with their previous plans. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 13. It says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. 
about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. I love it when Jesus kind of plays dumb. It's kind of neat. Uh, Anyway, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. This is a story that I, I go to a lot because in that line, the most powerful line to me in this story is that line where these guys say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And I think there's a lot of times in a lot of our lives where we put a hope in God that doesn't come through the way we thought it should. We, we prayed a prayer, we asked God to do a particular thing, or, or we thought that maybe God should be better than he is and he should have prevented a thing that happened in our lives. Or something in our lives goes on so that our hope doesn't match what God does. And then we come face to face with this dilemma of God letting us down. And that's where these guys are. And so I think it's incredibly important for us to get to this place in this story because these guys are literally in that moment where their hope has been dashed, where they are disappointed beyond belief. And the answer to their hope is literally standing right next to them, talking to them about this whole thing. And the fact that they are utterly disappointed at God's lack of showing up at the exact moment when God has shown up is astounding to me. And it's a place that I have been in more than once. And it's a place that I need to keep thinking about because I will be there again. So I want to help you understand what these guys are going through. And I'm just going to say, first of all, there are three faulty expectations. There are two men and there are three faulty expectations. And these faulty expectations about Jesus are the reasons why they get disappointed by Jesus. Number one, they had a faulty expectation that dead people stay dead. This is important because, see, they say we had hopes. Notice That's in the past tense. They say we had hoped. It's not we were still going to hope. It's not we are still hoping. It's not we hope. It's we had hoped. The hope is in the past. The hope is dead. How did their hope die? Jesus died. Because, see, they feel like if their hope is in Jesus and Jesus has died, then their hope has died, right? It makes perfect sense. But that's just because they have a faulty expectation that dead people stay dead. Now, listen, 
This is the number one expectation that I have in life that I will be overjoyed when I get disappointed. I want to be disappointed about this reality. Everybody would say, man, we all experience dead people stay dead. But I want to be disappointed so much about that. The problem is these guys are in that place where they are feeling the disappointment based on their expectation rather than based on a hope that can cross over death. We had hoped, they say. The second expectation they have is right here in the passage. You can see it. The women go to the tomb. The women hear the angels. The women find it empty. And then the disciples, Peter and John, run to the tomb and they see no one. Jesus does not appear to them. And this is their second expectation. If Jesus were to come back, a risen Jesus would have appeared to us. Now, I really believe this is the heart behind that last line that they have said there, where they say, the women found the tomb empty, some of our companions ran to the tomb, but they didn't see Jesus. See, there are two places there where Jesus did the wrong thing. When Jesus wakes up and comes out of the tomb, he needs to go directly to the most important people in his life, doesn't he? He needs to go directly to me. He needs to go directly to those of us who've been with him for this long, two and a half, maybe three years. Jesus, of all the people that he should visit in the entire universe, needs to come to me. If he had been risen, then why wouldn't he make his first appearance to me? And the women show up at the tomb, and they're the first ones to find the tomb empty, but the, and then the angels talk to them, but the disciples haven't met the angels, the disciples haven't seen the angels. In fact, the disciples go to the tomb, and him they did not see. Do you know why I know that was a disappointment to these two guys? Because they stayed there on Sunday morning long enough to hear all these things before they decided to walk away from Jerusalem. These guys were with the disciples. These guys heard the story of Mary and Martha and the other Mary going to the tomb. They heard the story. They knew it. How could they hear the story unless they were with the disciples when the women came back to tell the story? They saw Peter and John run. How else would they have known that Peter and John ran to the tomb? And they waited long enough for Peter and John to come back. How else would they have known that Peter and John didn't see Jesus? See, these guys waited there long enough to hear all the information, and they still walked away. Listen, if you had known that someone you loved had just been risen from the dead, would you leave town? No. These guys just, they're so overwrought with disappointment. And their disappointment is partially, if Jesus were raised, he should have come to me. And there's an insidiousness there that leads into this next one. And this is the most important one, I think. They say these words, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their expectation is that the Messiah was going to redeem Israel. And this is so important. We had hoped, the hope dies when Jesus dies. But it wasn't just that they hoped Jesus would be something. It's that they hoped he would be a specific thing. He would be the one to redeem Israel. Israel. 
The one to redeem the people of God. The one to set them up again. And listen, they had reason to believe this. The people of Israel had gone through many, many centuries of experiencing people attacking them and then a Savior coming and liberating them. And then people attacking them and a Savior liberating them. And then going off into exile and then coming back from exile. And now they have been overrun by the Romans. And they are thinking to themselves, the Messiah is supposed to come. And they have every reason to believe so. Because the prophet talked about it. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of prophecy passages that talk about what the Messiah was supposed to do. Let's put up this first one from Jeremiah. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. He's talking directly to Jeremiah and through Jeremiah kind of talking about the the future prophet to come. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. He says, for I'm with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. This is Jeremiah prophesying that one of these days the Messiah is going to come and that Messiah is going to be this person who is unstoppable. This person who is going to redeem the people of Israel, to liberate them from the hands of the cruel. Look at this next one from Jeremiah 31. It says this, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hands of those stronger than they. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, there was a promise that God would send one to redeem Israel from the hand of those stronger than they. And here's Israel living under the oppressive hand of Rome. And man, the Messiah is supposed to come and liberate us. Oh, and then beyond that, uh, you need to know that Jeremiah 31 is definitely a chapter that was viewed as a messianic chapter. You know how I know that? Because Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. This chapter is definitely one that people thought was talking about the Messiah. But let's go on to another one. This is from Isaiah. Take a look at this one. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's Jesse is the father of King David. And so uh, a shoot coming up from Jesse means uh, someone in the line of David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Keep going. It says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. This is a passage where clearly this righteous judge is going to show up in power, and he is going to dominate the world. He is going to bring Israel together, and they are going to be a unified country, not fighting each other, and they are going to dominate the world, so it seems. And then, of course, Isaiah 61, one that we looked at two weeks ago. 
says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Keep going. It says they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And you, will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. This is a statement that this Messiah is going to come and the wealth of the nations is going to come into Israel and the people of Israel are going to be blessed by the wealth of the world. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This grand nationalistic viewpoint that they had. There's just, of course, one problem. Confirmation bias. Have you heard this term? Confirmation bias is a thing that all of us are guilty of. We all have it. It's a thing that shows up in science. It's a thing that shows up in politics. It's a thing that definitely shows up on Facebook. It's a thing that shows up in 100% of conspiracy theories. And it's a thing that shows up in the way you are sitting in this room right now. Confirmation bias is simply put this When I hear something that follows in line with what I already believe, I give it credit. And when I hear something that doesn't fall in line with something I already believe, I initially doubt it. Because all of us have a tendency to protect ourselves. And because we want to protect ourselves, if something confirms who I am, I accept it. And if something doesn't confirm who I am or how I think, I initially reject it. And there has to be a whole lot of other stuff that can prove to me that, yes, I should accept this thing that challenges me. And here are these guys, and they have a belief that Israel is the chosen people of God. And they have a conviction that the Messiah was supposed to come into this world to redeem, to rescue, to to establish Israel and to make them this amazing thing. And so they only paid attention to the parts of the prophets that confirmed their bias. They missed a few things. Let me show you a few of the things that they missed. Four things that they missed. The first one is God's original covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to do something in your family that I've never done before. Take a look at this. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Oh yeah, they got the first half. God is making a promise, I'm going to bless you. But they missed the last line. God is making a promise that everyone on the planet will be blessed through you. I'll come back to that. Let's look at the next thing they missed. The next thing they missed is the prophecies. So the original covenant they missed, and the prophecies they missed. Take a look at Isaiah. We already looked at Isaiah verse, chapter 11, but now I want to show you verse 10, right in the middle of the passage that I just read to you about conquering the world. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. That sounds more like peace than it does war. And it sounds more inclusive than it does just Israel, doesn't it? 
I'll come back to that in just a little bit because you need to see something else they missed. They missed the Christmas story. They missed the angels at the Christmas announcement. Take a look at this from Luke chapter 2. Verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good good news that will cause great joy. For who? For all the people. And they also missed the announcement of John the Baptist himself. In John chapter 1, we read this. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we had thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. See, here's the problem with these guys. They thought that God was in this world for them. They thought God was in this world for them. But God isn't in this world for one group of people. He's in this world for all the people. And everything that God had promised that he was going to do for Israel was a promise of something he was going to do through Israel to bless the rest of the world. God never gave any promise that was supposed to be only for Israel. His promise was to make something through Israel for the world. And here, even when John the Baptist said, everybody, pay attention, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, and one other thing. Do you happen to know what the Lamb of God would have referred to? A lamb who takes away sin is one who has been sacrificed. When John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist is clearly saying two things. He's saying, one, Jesus is here for the sake of the world, and two, the only way to make it happen is for him to die. And now we come to these guys' disappointment. They were disappointed that Jesus died. They were disappointed that he didn't redeem Israel like they thought he was supposed to. And yet the whole time, Jesus was doing the exact thing that he had to do in order to do the thing that he had planned to do. Jesus' plan all the time was to do something bigger. Let me show you. At the end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, Jesus has just revealed himself to the guys on the road. They are so aware of Jesus, and then Jesus disappears from their sight, and they come running back to Jerusalem, and when they get back to Jerusalem, they're now hanging out with all the other disciples, and they say, we saw Jesus on the road. And while they're in the room, Jesus shows up in the midst of the room with them right there. And at the end of the chapter, we read these words in verse 45. Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Oh, but we had thought he would be the one to redeem Israel. No, he would be the one to sacrifice his life, to suffer and rise from the dead, so that repentance and forgiveness could be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Not for Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. Not for Israel, through Israel. I want you to write down a couple things. These guys were disappointed because they had hoped that he had come for them. But the truth is he came for the world. 
there's this little line that we read where these guys are on the road and Jesus comes next to them and he asks them the question, what's been going on? What are you guys talking about? And it says that they stopped and their faces were downcast. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. When you're stopped and your face is downcast, that is what I would call the posture of disappointment. The posture of, I didn't, I didn't get what I expected. The posture of disappointment. And I want to declare to you that the posture of disappointment is, both, is the same, both before and after the disappointment. The posture of disappointment is the same while you're expecting something and after you've been disappointed. And it is because the posture of disappointment is like putting blinders on and the only thing that you can see apart from one step in front of you is yourself. You see, the posture of disappointment is a place where you have focused on yourself, where you have focused on what you wanted, where you have focused on what God was supposed to do for you, where you have focused. Now listen, there are plenty of times when you can be disappointed at what God didn't do for someone else, but by and large, most of the time when we face disappointment, it's really because there's something that we wanted, even if it's something that we wanted for someone else, but it's something that we wanted. And it's in that place of expectation where we want God to do something for me and only me that then when God does something for them, two things are true. One, I can't see it. And two, I won't receive it because I'm here in me. And the only possible way for me to lift my head is for someone to truly disappoint me all the way. You see, I believe Jesus had to disappoint these guys in order to get their heads off themselves, in order to lift their heads. Jesus had to disappoint them to lift their heads. And I want to encourage you the same way. There is something in your life where you are focusing on yourself and not on the world around you. You are focusing on what God could do for you lately and not what you want, what he wants to do for the rest of the world. And it's in that place where we find our disappointment. It's in that place where we find our disappointment, where we say, God, you haven't done anything for me lately. I can only see myself in one step in front of me. And God says, I've got such a bigger plan. And my plan isn't just for you. My plan is for the whole world. And so he disappoints you so he can lift your head. So you can do two things. You can look up and say, God, I want to get your bigger picture. One of these days, I'm going to join you in your kingdom. And all this stuff down here doesn't matter nearly as much as what you're doing for your kingdom. I want to look up. And I want to anticipate your return because one of these days, you are coming back, Jesus, and you are going to make all things right. And Jesus has to lift my head so I can see what's going on around me. And I can see the hurting and broken people around me who need to know some hope and need to know some salvation. And I can speak to them and say, listen, there is a Savior who has come and he's coming again. My friends, this Christmas season, 
Allow yourself to be disappointed with the things you wanted from Jesus and allow yourself to receive the things Jesus wants to do from you, the things Jesus wants to do through you, the things Jesus wants to do in you. Keep your head up. Look up to the skies, hope and anticipation of Jesus' return. And in the meantime, while we wait, let's spread the message because forgiveness of sin will be preached throughout all the world to all the nations, beginning with wherever you are. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.